Lord's Christ, who is not only the Savior of the world, he is the king over this world. He is the creator. He is the owner. He is the sustainer. He is the ruler. We are so grateful for that, so grateful for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that one day we will sing his praise forever. We will stand before the throne. Your word says that we will see him face to face and we will give thanks finally and wonderfully in his presence. We look forward to that day, but we also know we also know that you have promised that when even just a handful of us are gathered together, that you are here in the midst of us. And so we pray that your spirit would move powerfully in the hearts of your people, that your spirit would take your word and take its truth and drive it deeply into our hearts this morning. Help us to understand what you're saying, Father. Help us to hear what it is that you want us to hear. Take away everything that is not your words this morning and work in our hearts and change us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks, folks. Have a seat. <clears throat> when he left university in 1972, Dave Schwartz had an idea. He started going around to all the local junkyards and buying up old beat-up cars. Dented, scratched, rusted. Put a little bit of money together, bought four or five of these cars, rented some garage space, and started tinkering. He was mechanically minded, and he got these cars so that they were running. They still didn't look very good, but they were running. And almost as a joke, he decided to put a sign out in front of his garage. And on the sign, he painted just by hand with a paintbrush, rent a wreck. In Southern California, people started showing up to Dave's garage and renting these old, dented, scratched, rusty cars because they needed something to drive and they didn't have the money to, to rent something or buy something nicer. His principle, his idea was simple. As long as it runs and as long as it's reliable, who cares what it looks like? He realized that there were tons of cars out there that just needed a little love. Well, he did this for a few years and some people were laughing at him, but in 15 years he had hundreds of franchises all over the world and he was a very wealthy man. Now, there's a metaphor in there for us this morning that I want to talk about for a few minutes. And in the metaphor, we're not the guy that has the brilliant idea and becomes very wealthy. That's not the part that's us. The part that's us in the metaphor is the dented, scratched, rusty car. <laughs> because we've got some miles and we've got some rust We've got some scratches, and sometimes it seems like our lives are ready for the scrap heap, but in reality, what we need is someone who will come along and just give us a little love to get us back to where we need to be. Well, 
the thought that I want us to think about this morning as we dive into God's word is this. God's covenant love is always faithful. Now what does that mean? It means that God loves his own and his love never changes. It means despite our sin, despite our unfaithfulness to him, God redeems us and he restores us. Because we are his people, we are his chosen ones. Now this is true of the nation Israel, but this is also true of us as Christ followers here in this day and age. Way back in the month of May, how many people remember the month of May? Does anybody else feel like that was 10 years ago? I, I was doing something this morning and I thought, oh yeah, when I did that, man, when was that? It was like Tuesday. But those five days, I'm not, I'm not making that up to try and make you laugh. It didn't work anyway because you didn't laugh, but I'm not making that up. I am serious. I was like, man, when did I do that? It was literally Tuesday. May seems like it was a decade ago. But in May, we started telling the whole story. And so, obviously, we started in Genesis. And for those of you that don't remember, it was Pastor Tim that did that first message in Genesis. And he took us to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis 12, God spoke to Abraham, and he promised Abraham that he would take his little family, which at that time was literally just Abraham and his wife, Sarah, I'm going to take your family, and I'm going to make your family a vast nation. And through your family, which I will bless, I'm going to bless the entire world. That was God's covenant of love with Abraham's family. In Genesis 12, verse 2, he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In that little promise, in those two words, God says, I will, five times, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This was God's promise to Abraham his covenant that he would not break to the nation of Israel. Now, how many of you believe that God keeps his promises? Hey, that's the best response I think I've ever had when I've asked a question. Almost everybody raised their hand. That's good. Yes, God keeps his promises. We've looked at some of the promises of God's word. He keeps his, what I want you to see is God keeps his promises no matter what his people do. He is faithful to those promises. God is faithful. Thankfully, he is not like us. When we make a promise to someone, if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, a lot of times we don't follow through. If you're not going to do that, then I'm not going to do this. You're going to do this to me, I'm going to do that to you. But God is faithful. It doesn't matter what we do. He always keeps his promises. Now, Fast forward about 1,200 years from the time that God gave Abraham that promise. Israel has walked with God some, a little off and on actually, as you know, because we've gone through many of these books. God delivered them from famine. He rescued them from Egypt. He gave them a beautiful land of their own. And after they got settled into that land and God gave them a king, which is what they wanted. It wasn't God's first choice for them, but it's what they wanted. He let them have it, and they turned away from him. 
In fact, they, com- they committed, according to God, spiritual adultery. They were unfaithful to God. They broke the covenant. And so God now calls Hosea. Hosea is a prophet. He is God's man. And he tells Hosea to give them a message. Now God is going to do what I just did for you at the beginning. I told you a little story as a metaphor. And God decides to give Israel a metaphor. Only in God's metaphor, he uses real people and their real lives and what is going to take place in those lives. And so he tells Hosea to go and marry someone, a lady by the name of Gomer, and he tells Hosea up front, she is going to be unfaithful to you. Now, in our human relationships, if we're seeking a husband or a wife, one of the primary things that we are looking for, maybe the primary thing is, we're looking for someone who will be faithful to us, right? You want to get to know that person, to know if you can trust them, if they will be there for you. But God tells Hosea, go and marry this woman. She will be unfaithful to you. But this is what I'm commanding you to do. So Hosea obeyed. He was a prophet. He was God's man. And then after he married her, she was unfaithful. Just as God said she would be, she was unfaithful. And beyond that, she became a prostitute. What would Hosea do next? I want to show you this morning that Hosea would demonstrate the power of God's relentless love. Look at Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1. In Hosea 3 verse 1, Hosea says this, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Go again and love her. What I want you to see here in this verse is the reclaiming power of love. What does he tell Hosea? He says, go get her back. Now we feel like if we're in a relationship with someone and they are unfaithful to us, that we should just let them go. I mean, we've done our part, but if they're not faithful to us, if they don't do our part, then, then we let them go. But God says to Hosea, go get her back. And in his mind, at least on some level, I have to wonder if, if Hosea is saying, are you sure, God? Are you sure this is what you want me to do? Because you know what she's doing, right? God said, yeah, I know what she's doing. Go get her back. Go again, he says, and love her. Now, I want you to notice something from these verses I thought was interesting as I was looking at them earlier this week. He says, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. You need to get the picture here. Gomer... Hosea's wife, 
was not coming back to Hosea and asking him to take her back. She was not repentant. She wasn't knocking on the door saying, Hosea, please let me in. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, she was actively committing adultery. She was actively unfaithful. It says she is an adulteress. Not she was an adulteress. She is an adulteress. She is not repentant. Go again, Hosea, and love her. The word love actually carries with it the idea of persistently pursuing. You know what God was telling Hosea? He was saying, Hosea, chase her down. Chase her down. Go back and get her. Find her and love her. What? Why? How? This is the power of faithful love, the reclaiming power of faithful love to to go get someone who has turned away. It's not romantic, it's not emotional, but it's relentless. And God tells Hosea, go love her again, just like I love the children of Israel. He had loved them the same way. God sought to reclaim them, even though they committed spiritual adultery, even though they had worshipped idols. He still loved them, and he still wanted them back. And he promised to reclaim them. Look at verse 2 of Hosea 3. We see Hosea's response to God's command. Verse 2 says, So... I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. I want you to see here the redeeming power of love. Not only did God say, Hosea, go get her, go chase her down, go find her and reclaim her for yourself. Not only did Hosea reclaim her, he paid for the privilege. Now imagine Hosea Imagine Hosea leaving his house and going to the part of town that no self-respecting man would go to and not only looking for his wife and not only reclaiming his wife, but paying to reclaim her. Now it says here, 15 shekels of silver and and some barley. Know enough to know that this is a tremendous amount of money and probably everything that Hosea had or else he would have just given money. He didn't have enough money, it seems, so he gave money and barley. Everything that he had to get her back. Why is this significant? Well, it's it's significant for a couple of reasons. But what I want you to see from Gomer's part, from his wife's part, is she had become a slave. And the reason why that's significant is no one sets out to become a slave, right? I mean, no one does that. Are we all agreed on that? What does that tell us? You know what that tells us, folks? It tells us that Gomer's sin had taken her further than she wanted to go. Did she want to be unfaithful to Hosea? Apparently, because she did it. But that decision 
set in motion a chain of decisions that took her further than she wanted to go and made and, and cost her more than she was able to pay. But Hosea bought her back. Literally, he bartered. Literally, he traded. Literally, he went to where Gomer was and he said to the one in whom she, to whom she was indebted, I'll give you this for her. And the guy said, no, I want this. And Hosea said, I'll give you 15 shekels. And the guy said, no, I want 18. And he said, I don't have 18. I've got 15. But I've got this too. Will you take this and 15? And they literally made a deal. They bartered for her. As we follow the metaphor, this is exactly what Jehovah would do for Israel. He would give his own precious son to buy back their freedom. How do we know that? We know that because God's word says it explicitly. In 1 Peter 1:18, Peter says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, but not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now see, God knows all about what happened with Isaiah. He set this metaphor in motion and he continues it several hundred years later through Peter and says, don't you see, I told you that I would do this. Remember Hosea? Remember what I asked him to do? I told you I would do this. I ransomed you. And it wasn't with silver. Hosea had silver, but I gave the blood of my son. Hosea chapter 3, verse 3. Back to Hosea. And I said to her, Hosea said to his wife, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. We've seen the reclaiming power of love and the redeeming power of love. But here, I want you to see that this kind of love goes even further. This is the restoring power of love. Hosea didn't go by her back to make her his slave. Now, humanly speaking, we would think that's grace enough. Oh, gee, she's screwed up. I'll go, I'll go get her freedom. I'll get her out of there. Doesn't know what she's doing. That's not what Hosea did. Look at what Hosea did. He buys her back to be his wife. Come back to me. He restores her. Live with me and be my wife and I'll be a husband to you. That's the restorative power of true, faithful love. Friends, see this because this is the message. Gomer's sin was great, but Hosea's love was greater. And what of God's love for Israel? Notice what Hosea says in verse 4. 
For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come and fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. What does God say through Hosea? He said, Israel will return. They'll come back. I'll restore them to the house of God. He will welcome them. He will be their God. And Jesus will be their king. See that? David their king, he says. But we know that that means Jesus. How do we know that? Well, I know you know that because now you know everything about the Bible from Genesis to Hosea. Because Tim and I have told you all of it. So that first thousand pages, you guys are good. And what do we know from 2 Samuel? It was me that did 2 Samuel about five months ago. In 2 Samuel, we looked at the Davidic covenant. Tim's message from Genesis 12 was the Abrahamic one, where God promised Abraham, I'll make your family a great nation. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said to David, David, here's what I'm going to do. You're the king, and here's my promise. Your family is going to be on the throne forever. For all of eternity, how is that possible? It's only possible through Jesus. And if we go to Matthew, you're not responsible for Matthew yet because we haven't got there yet. We go to Matthew and we go down through the lineage, down through the genealogy of Jesus. Guess what we find? Jesus is from David's family. He's from the tribe of Judah. In Revelation chapter 7, we see this very thing spoken of. We read that 144,000 Jews will be saved in the last days, 12,000 from each ancient tribe of Israel, and they will experience God's blessing and his presence and all that he ever intended for them, and that relationship will never fracture again. This promise will be fulfilled. And we see the reclaiming, redeeming, restoring power of relentless love. But what about us? Because that's Israel. What about us? Where are we in all of this? Is there a promise for us here too? I believe that there is. And we go to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says this, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. That's us, by the way. We're the Gentiles. Well, I apologize if any of you have a Jewish heritage, but most of us here are Gentiles. We're not Jews. We're not from the nation of Israel. And that's who Paul's talking to. Remember, remember who you were. You're Gentiles. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, God made this promise to Israel, I will reclaim you, I will redeem you, I will restore you. But that was to Israel. That promise was to them. And that's what Paul is saying. You are outside of that promise. You're not a part of that covenant. But look at verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Wow. That's good news. That's good news, guys. You who are far off. Our sin separates us from God. But the restoring, redeeming, reclaiming power of God's relentless love, what does he say? Brings us near. If you're a parent, you have been a parent, you're a grandparent, your children disobey, do something you have expressly forbidden them to do, and you punish them as you should, as you need to, one of the things that happens is that relationship feels a little feels a little distanced. One of the most powerful things that you can do as a parent after you punish your child is to then take them in your arms and hold them close. Why? So they know. So they know that they're still your child. And that's what God does. He says we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Going on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but listen to this, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God's faithful love is for us. It's for all of us. We are sinful people. But where sin is great, God's love is greater. Friends, what's our thought for today? It's this. God's covenant love is always faithful. His covenant love is always faithful. Nothing can separate you from his love. That's what Romans 8 says. Romans 8 says, if you are God's child, nothing can take you away from his love. We need to be so thankful for that. Those are verses that we read sometimes in the night to comfort us, aren't they, at the end of Romans 8, that nothing shall separate you from the love of God. But as we close this morning, I want to remind you of something that we can easily overlook when we talk about his amazing, relentless love, and that is our sin. Friends, just like Gomer, your sin is a disgusting blot compared to his holiness. Just like Gomer, your sins are many, and they are vile, and they cannot be overlooked. And your sin carries a cost, and it's greater than you can pay. Gomer made one decision, and it took her further than she wanted to go. And it ended up costing her more than she could pay. And that's like our sin. It takes us further than we want to go. It costs us more than we can afford to pay. And that is what is so truly incomprehensible about the love of God. This is what John is talking about in 1 John 4.10. He says it this way, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins.
God pursues us despite our sin. And because the price must be paid and the vile sin must be judged, his son pays the price. Jesus pays the price. How is that possible? How can that be? I'm a filthy, rotten sinner. Well, it can be because he pleads our cause. He stands for us. He pays the price for our sin. We're going to sing those words together this morning, and I invite you to join us as we sing the song. Let the words wash over you this morning and give thanks for the amazing, relentless power of the love of God. pursues you. He chases you down. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And the blood of Christ saves you. Not just once, but every day. I don't know about you, but I need it every day. I need strength. I need help. I need grace. Hebrews 7.25 says, because Jesus has done this, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. To the uttermost. Every day. Every minute of every day when we draw close to the Father because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the grace that he gives us, we can be free. We can be free. Not just free in terms of the fact that we we don't have a destiny in hell to look forward to, but free from the sin that we fight every day. That's the freedom. His relentless love. His mercy is more. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you that we are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for how lightly we treat it. We forget its vileness in contrast to your perfect and absolute holiness. Forgive us for our adultery, for putting others, lesser ones, in front of you. But thank you for the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, whose blood buys us back, redeems us. Thank you for reclaiming us from the scrap heap of life and restoring us. We're not just your slaves. We're your sons and your daughters. Thank you for holding us close and loving us. How can it be? How can it be that that's possible? Only through your unrelenting mercy and your matchless grace, your mercy is more. Thank you, Father. May we not quickly lose sight of that today. 
May we continually give thanks and seek to walk in your presence and by your power as our Lord Jesus continues each moment to save us to the uttermost. In his name we pray this morning. Amen. Thank you, folks. I'm glad you've been here, and I hope you have a great week.